When you have children in your life, the whole celebration of holidays takes on a whole new thing, doesn't it? Uh, just brings it to life in certain ways. And it's fun to watch them try to process and understand what certain holidays mean. And we uh, often call this morning Resurrection Sunday. Of course, it's more broadly referred to as Easter. And our children, my girls, are trying to understand a little bit about this day, about this weekend. And just this past week, Lilia was, we were in the car together, and they asked a series of questions. And Lilia said to me, Daddy, what is candy and chocolate and bunnies have to do with Jesus rising from the dead. I said, nothing. So you don't want any this Sunday? And uh, she didn't like that question. So they got their chocolate and bunnies and eggs this morning. And then Caroline asked me a great little question, something an adult would never think to ask. She said, she was thinking about this weekend, we were talking about Good Friday and, and Resurrection Sunday. And she said to me, Daddy, why did they kill Jesus so close to Easter? <laughs> so it gave us a neat little opportunity to explain. Well, if they didn't kill Jesus, there wouldn't be Easter. She's, in her little mind, she's like, oh, it worked out pretty well. You know, they killed him on... The children are trying to make sense of the world, aren't they? And they're trying to understand. In all over the world this weekend, uh, really billions of people uh, have set aside time in their lives to reflect upon Good Friday the sufferings of Christ, and of course this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I think it's a mistake if we don't pause like kids often do and ask the simple question, what does it mean? What does this all mean? The songs that we sang this morning, the, the things that we believe to be true, what does this mean for us today? What did it mean then? What does it mean today? And so this morning, I just want to share a message with you called, What Does This Mean? And we're going to look at a passage in Hebrews chapter 12, just two verses I want to read to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We don't know who wrote this book, but the author of Hebrews wrote these words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses, the author is talking about those who have gone before us. And some of us, all of us really in this room who call this our church, uh, we have a new person in the crowd of witnesses this Easter, don't we? My dad, your pastor, and now Kid Anderson, and then others of you. I'm not going to try and list them all because I'll forget someone. But others of you have lost people this year that you miss dearly. And they're in this crowd of witnesses that the author of Hebrew is writing about. Those who have gone before and, and in a way are, are, are cheering us on and, and, and uh, rooting for us. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Now, running the race with endurance sounds like a wonderful challenge, but it's also a very difficult task, isn't it? It's difficult to run this race with endurance. Where do we find the strength? Well, thankfully, we go to verse 2 and we find the strength. And this is our key verse this morning. The author says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Simple. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. He starts it and he finishes it. Because of the joy awaiting him, or other translations say, because of the joy that was before him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. This morning I have three simple, very easy to remember points for you. All of this means that Jesus endured, Jesus emerged, and Jesus entered. 
Jesus endured, Jesus emerged, and Jesus entered. Let's talk first about Jesus endured. It says because of the joy awaiting him that Jesus endured the cross disregarding its shame. The Greek word for endure there carries an image with it of somebody remaining underneath something, to remain under something, to stay, to endure. You know, we endure all sorts of things in our lives that are difficult because there's something that we want at the end of it. I endure sometimes eating vegetables because I also want to eat my meat, right? Some of you endure eating your dinner because you want to get to dessert. We endure things. Children, you endure going to school and, and doing your homework and taking tests because you want to get a good grade and you want to get out of school eventually and you want to get a job and you want to have a career and you want to take care of your mom and dad when they're old, right? Right, moms and dads? We endure standing in long lines because we want to see our favorite band or we want to get on our favorite roller coaster. We endure eating things like beets and quinoa and kale because we want to be healthy. At least I assume that's why people eat those things. And this weekend, it's important for us to remember that Jesus chose, that's important, he chose to endure. There are things you've had to endure in your life that you didn't choose. They were thrust upon you by life. The cross was not thrust upon Jesus. Jesus himself said, no one takes my life from me. Only I lay my life down. Jesus didn't just endure, he, he chose to endure, and he chose to endure the cross. And listen, here's the thing about the cross. We, we wear them around our neck, we hang them on the walls, we sing about it, we talk about it. We're almost over-inundated with the cross to the point where it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's become a beautiful thing. And of course, for the Christian on this side of the cross, it's a beautiful thing. But do you know how bizarre it would have been in first century Roman Empire for someone to wear a cross around their neck? It would be the equivalent of someone today taking a little model of an electric chair and putting it on a necklace and wearing it around their neck. But not quite, because the cross was the most gruesome form of execution that existed. It was so gruesome that Roman citizens, no matter what they did, could not be crucified. This was a form of execution that was reserved for slaves, for pirates, and for basically what then uh, we would now call terrorists, enemies of the state. Crucifixion was considered the most shameful and disgraceful way for a human being to be executed. In fact... 300 years later, the Emperor Constantine outlawed crucifixion because of how cruel of an execution form it was. And Jesus chose to endure the cross. He chose to endure the cross. He didn't just choose to endure the cross, but it talks in this passage about the shame. He chose to endure the shame. And not just the shame of hanging on the cross naked as a criminal, but also the shame of our sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes that God made Jesus, who never sinned, to become our sin. One thing we know from both Scripture and our own life experience is that one thing that sin always leads to is shame. Have you learned that? Sin always leads to shame. The only two people in the world that ever existed that, never, that, that knew what it was like to not feel shame were the first two people that were created, Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve were created in paradise, they, until the fall, they didn't know what shame felt like. And Genesis has a very funny way of describing what it's like to not feel shame. This is how the author of Genesis writes it. It says that Adam and Eve were naked and they didn't even know it. They were naked and they didn't even 
realizing. Now, there's some dreams that a lot of us have in common, right? You ever have that dream? We all kind of have some of the same dreams. The dream where you're falling. Maybe you have the dream where you're falling and you wake up in bed and you're like, ah! you know, like you, you yell real loud and you just terrify your spouse and then you have to explain to them what was happening. Uh, you ever, any of you have the dream where you're being chased and you like can't get away and you're running and you're running? I have this dream every now and then. Anyone ever have the dream where your teeth are breaking in your mouth? Just me? No one else has that dream? Come on, it's a counseling session for me. Who else has that dream? All right, a a few of you. I guess it's about stress or something. One of the dreams that a lot of people report having at some point in their lives is the dream that they show up somewhere in public and they're not wearing what they should be wearing, if you know what I mean. Whether it's uh, walking into school or walking to workplace or walking to the mall and you're walking and in your dream, all you can see is other people's faces staring at you in a very strange way. And then at some point in the dream, you realize either you're just wearing your underwear or you're wearing nothing and you walk in and you're just like, you have that dream. You showed up and you forgot to put your clothes on. And the truth is, is because we're on this side of the fall, if one of us was to accidentally walk into a room not wearing any clothes, we would realize it. We would realize it. In fact, it's the only thing we would be realizing in that moment. But here's Adam and Eve before the fall, no shame, naked, and they don't realize it. That sort of lack of self-thought is something we can't even begin to understand because we're always thinking about ourselves and always measuring ourselves and always hoping that we measure up and always hoping that we're good enough. And shame, shame is this unavoidable, overwhelming sense that we're not good enough. Not that we've done bad things, but that we ourselves are wrong and that there's something wrong with us. And shame tells us that if people really knew you, they wouldn't like you anymore. And so shame causes us, as it did with Adam and Eve, to either hide or to blame. Shame always leads to one of those two things. So we've all experienced shame. Everyone in this room at some point has experienced shame. And on the cross, Jesus experienced shame, the shame of sin. But not the shame of his sin, because he never sinned. The shame of humanity's sin. And I want you to imagine this for a moment. Imagine that somehow we could take a big bucket and go around this room and gather everybody's shame all the shame you've ever experienced in your life. And then we'll go to the mall and do the same. And then we'll go all over Syracuse and we'll do the same. And then we'll go around the state of New York and then we'll go around the country and then we'll go around the world and then we'll go through the history of time before and the history of time to come and we'll get all the shame that any human being has ever felt into one big bucket. And that is what was poured out on Jesus Christ. That's what he experienced, that sort of shame. And he chose to endure the cross and the shame of the cross. Now, why did he endure? Why did he endure? And it says here in the text that he endured for the joy that was set before him. A few weeks ago, I mentioned this, but what was the joy that was set before Jesus? I mean, you know, when you go to the gym to work out, those of you that maybe do that, you do it because you have some vision of joy in your mind, and it's being healthy, it's living a long life, maybe it's getting your beach body for the summer, and so you, you, you go into the gym, and you kind of have this, like maybe what we might refer to as like a carrot on the end of the stick that keeps you going and keeps you running and keeps you working out and keeps you eating healthy. That's the joy that's set before you. So you keep working out, you keep eating healthy, you keep doing things, you don't have an extra slice of pie today at lunch. Whatever it is, you turn those things down because there's some joy set before you. Well, Jesus didn't just, he wasn't enduring a workout. He wasn't enduring a diet. He endured the cross and the shame and the abandonment of the father. Why? For the joy set before him. Well, it must have been a great joy. What was the joy? It was really two things. It was doing the will of his father. And the second thing that his joy was, was you. 
you and me. His thinking about us. We were his joy. And, and here, here's how I would say this. I, I don't know what you think about Jesus this morning. I don't know if you believe in him. I don't know if you worship him. I don't know if you love him. I don't know what you think about him. But according to this text, we know what Jesus thinks about you. You were the joy set before him. He endured the cross for you. See, in, in Romans chapter five, it says this, beginning in verse six. It says, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's powerful. We didn't have any power to save ourselves. You can't save yourselves, yourself. You can't fix yourself. You can't make yourself right. Many of us try through many different ways, but you're powerless. And when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Look at verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. So, so Paul is saying, yeah, okay, if it's your best friend, maybe you'll give your life for them. If it's your child or your spouse, for a good person. But verse 8 turns it on its head. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were driving the nails into the hands and feet of Jesus, Christ died for us. It's a demonstration of his love. My family and I love to, we live in Liverpool, but we love to make the drive out to Township 5 in Camillus because there's a Costco's there. And I love Costco's. By the way, there's a rumor that there's a Costco's coming to 31, so I'll see you never, Camillus. Uh, But (laughs) we'll drive out there and... uh, I only go to Costco's, I've learned. I only go to Costco's between the hours of 12 and 4. Do you know why? Does anybody know why? Samples. <laughs> Samples. I made the mistake one time of going at 11 thinking I'm going to be the first in line. And I walked in there and my little heart broke. I was like, I was like, where are these people? And I just started helping myself to stuff on the shelf. We love, we love samples. There's all sorts of samples, and they're doing different demonstrations. And, and my daughters, by the way, you know, if there's 15 sample stands set up, which is, is normative, um, uh, my daughters only usually end up wanting to try five of them just because they're pickier. But they've learned now, just no matter what, get it. Just get it, because daddy will eat it. Just get it. <laughs> so salmon, they don't want it, but daddy will eat it, right? So they'll get it. But every now and then, we'll run into a sample, it's very rare, that I don't want and that they like a lot. And recently we did that, and and Lilia really liked it. I forget what it was, it was mac and cheese or something, but she really liked it, and I didn't have mine yet. And so I told her, just, you know, because she ate it, and she's like, I want another one, you know? And so I said, just go say you're getting it for your dad. I'm standing right here, I was probably like 10 feet away, and so she runs over back up and goes, can I have one for my dad? And... They were like, of course. And so they give her a little portion and she takes it and she eats it like right in front of them. (laughs) She's like, thank you. Yeah. I just pray that that sort of bad lying stays over her life, her entire life. They also... In addition to samples, they do these little demonstrations. And if you go to the state fair, right, lots of people demonstrating different devices, things that will clean your house, things that will make your life easier. And if you were to watch one of those demonstrations, and at the end of the demonstration, walk up to the person and say, I just watched you for the last 10 minutes demonstrate this product. Is that everything it does? They would, of course, say, well, no, this is a demonstration. I'm just showing you a little bit of what it can do. And Paul chooses to use this word, That at the cross, God what? He demonstrated his love for you. 
It's just a demonstration. I'm not trying to make light of the cross or the love of the cross, but I'm just saying how much love does the Father have for us that the cross is just the demonstration of his love towards you. And Jesus endured the cross. He endured it. Now listen, he didn't just endure it for you. He didn't just endure it because of you, but he endured it as you. When he went to the cross, in a sense, you were in him and he took your punishment and he took all that you and I deserve for the sin in our lives and for the shame in our lives. He endured it for us and the great exchange of the cross is this, his perfect life, his sinless life, his perfect performance record is now given to those of us who hope and trust in him. So we're viewed by the Father as righteous, not because you and I are functionally righteous, we're not. Who in this room is perfect? Who in this room is behavior has been righteous 100% even this morning? Do you even know your own heart to know that your heart at every moment this morning was perfectly pleasing to God? We, we don't know that about ourselves. We can't declare ourselves as behaviorally righteous, but because of our hope in Jesus, we may not be behaviorally righteous all the time, although we should be growing that area, but we are 100% positionally righteous. In God's eyes, you are as righteous as if you lived the life that Jesus lived. And that's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 goes on to say, that God made him who knew no sin to become your sin. Why? So that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And you know what the opposite of shame is? It's righteousness. Shame is I'm unapproved, I'm not accepted, I'm not welcomed in, I'm marginalized, I'm outside, nobody loves me, and righteousness simply says you are approved and you are accepted. Shame tells you that if people really knew you, they would love you less, but the gospel tells you that Jesus knows you best and loves you most. Jesus endured. Second thing this morning, and this is what we celebrate this morning, Jesus emerged. Now, in, in the text that we read, it doesn't actually talk about the resurrection. Maybe you thought when I read it, this is a strange text for Resurrection Sunday. All it says is that he endured the shame of the cross, but now he's entered the place of honor. So what happened in between those two things? How did he go from the cross to the crown? Something had to happen in between. And the author of Hebrews doesn't bother spelling it out because in the first century Judaism, everybody knew the story of the resurrection. It wasn't, now it's debated. Now people ask the question, did it really happen? Was it a hoax? And here's the thing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I don't have the time to get into it this morning, but I can give you some notes on this if you want. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of two things, and you have to decide for yourself which it is. It's either the greatest hoax that's ever been put in front of the world or it's the greatest hope. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground. Either it is the biggest lie, the greatest hoax, the greatest uh, uh, sheet pulled over the face of humanity or it's the greatest hope that humankind has. There's lots of reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ beyond what even the Bible says. That's not the point of my message this morning. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the middle step between the shame of the cross and the place of honor. The middle step is what we celebrate this morning, that Jesus emerged. It appeared like he was defeated, but he won. It appeared like it was, how many people that followed him do you think went home that Friday after the cross and lost their faith? How difficult do you think Saturday was for his apostles, for his disciples? But the story doesn't end there. And as grateful as we are for the cross, I forget who said this morning, if it was Jason or Pastor Unhi, if there's no Sunday, we're the most hopeless people in the world. Here's one way I've heard it said, and I think this is so helpful. We owed a debt to God, and on Good Friday, Jesus 
paid the check, but on Sunday there was proof that the check cleared, that it actually paid what we owed. Jesus defeated the enemies of sin and death and hell. He died, he bore our sin, he descended to hell, but here's the problem for those three things, they had no claim on him. They couldn't hold him because he was the sinless son of God. He was the perfect sacrifice. So when he descended to hell and they thought they had him and the devil thought he won, they got the biggest surprise of their lives because they had no hold on him. They had no claim for him. And Jesus emerged from the tomb and emerged from the depth of hell as the victor overall. And out of apparent defeat came great victory. Jesus emerged. Now, the disciples didn't know this was... They didn't believe this was going to happen, even though Jesus had told them time and time again, it's going to happen. And let me give you one time where he talked about it. This is a little bit metaphorical, but he's talking about his resurrection. In John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says, now the time has come for the son of man to enter into his glory, to enter into his glory. John chapter 12, verse 23. Then verse 24, he goes on to say this, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Now, I'm not a gardener. I hate landscaping because it makes my hamstring sore. I hate everything about it. But I know this about, I know this about gardening. A seed, a seed sitting on your shelf isn't going to do anything. It has to fall into the ground and die so that life can come out. And Jesus here is talking about his own resurrection. He said, hey, if I don't go to the cross and die, then the life that you need will never be in you. I have to die so the life that is in me can get into you, and so you can experience the life. And here's what it means for you. This is one of my favorite quotes when I think about Resurrection Sunday. Uh, A traveling, well-known speaker named Christine Kane says this, sometimes when you're in a dark place, you think you've been buried, but you actually have been planted. (laughs) Is that good? Sometimes when you're in a dark place, you think you've been buried, but you've actually been planted. The devil thought he buried Jesus on Good Friday, but he planted him. And when Jesus was planted and died, when he emerged out, life just exploded like we're seeing it, like we're going to see it in the next few weeks and months to come in spring. Do you know what this means, by the way? This isn't just good news historically that Jesus did this, but it's good news for you today. Because some of you are possibly in a dark place and you feel like you've been buried. And I believe that the spirit of God, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead wants to say to you this morning, you've been planted. You've been planted. Trust the process. Let your roots grow deep. Take in the water of God's word and you will emerge and grow just like Jesus Christ emerged on Resurrection Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means this, anything is possible. Anything is possible. Jesus, Jesus doesn't, you accepting Jesus doesn't, doesn't hang on his teachings. You don't have to like his teaching to accept him. But if he rose from the dead, you have to accept him. That's a big deal. And so if Jesus rose from the dead, if he did what the scriptures say he did, if he did what tradition said he did, if he did what the lives of billions of people since he came and, and left proves that he did, then anything is possible for you. It means you have hope in every situation and you can emerge from any darkness, in any despair, in any moment of death, there's always hope. All right, so Jesus endured, Jesus emerged, and lastly this morning, Jesus entered. It's said in the text that he's seated in the place of honor, which is the right-hand side of the Father. And I love the fact that he is 
seated. And this is why I like it, because it means something very significant. Why was Jesus seated? This past weekend, we had our state youth convention. Thousands of students came in from all over the state, and we were at the SRC Arena, and we're running around like crazy and not sleeping very well. And I'm sure when, uh, when the services were over and some of those poor people from the city had to drive seven or eight hours home, I saw some vans that got home last night, 10, 11 p.m., long weekend. I'm sure when they finally got back to their houses, they were exhausted. You know what they did? They sat down. They just sat down. This is something about sitting down in your own house in that specific chair that nobody else ever better sit in. It's kind of like, a, it's kind of like form to your body and you just like collapse into that chair and you just, you just sit down because you're so tired. Well, when Jesus sat down here, it's not because he was tired. It's not like Jesus got up to heaven and was like, whew, that whole crucifixion thing took a lot out of me. That, that whole rising from the dead, man. That ascending into heaven, that really wore me out. Someone bring me an iced tea. I'm gonna sit down. This is the same reason why God sat down and rested on the seventh day of creation. God rested on the seventh day of creation not because he was tired, but because he was satisfied with his work. Jesus sat down at the right-hand side of the Father not because he was tired, but because he was satisfied with his work. It was enough. It was sufficient. It was finished. And here's what's so amazing. Because Jesus endured the shame of the cross as you, you can now enter the place of honor as if you're him. Because Jesus endured the shame of the cross as you, you can enter the place of honor as him. In Ephesians 2, 6, Paul says that God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's amazing. That should blow your mind that you, inconsistent you, insecure you, imperfect you, unsure you, mess up on Tuesdays you, are seated in heavenly places in the place of honor with Jesus Christ, not on the basis of your performance, not on the basis of your work, not because you endured, but because Jesus Christ endured in your place. And it's all possible because of what Jesus did for us. This all reminds me of the second verse of one of my favorite hymns that we sing here before the throne of God. It says this, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt or the shame within, upward I look And I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul has been counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Is that good news this morning? That you have the approval and acceptance and access because of Jesus. Jesus knows you best and he loves you most. In the place of shame, you can have love. In the place of bondage, you can have freedom. In the place of despair, you can have hope. In the place of loss, you can have joy. In the place of conflict, you can have peace. It's because Jesus endured, he emerged, and he entered. I want to finish with this thought. Jesus is seated at the place of honor. Well, what is he doing now? I mean, in one sense, his work is finished. He said it on the cross. It is finished. I did everything necessary for you to experience the salvation that comes from the Father. But on another hand, in another way, his work's not finished. That's why we're here. We're here to continue his work. We're here to continue his mission. We're here to continue to do the things that he came to do. Well, how are we going to do it? How are we going to endure to the end? How are we going to emerge out of darkness? How are we going to enter into all that God has for us? 
Well, look at what Jesus now does for us. He's seated at the place of honor, and according to Hebrews 7.25, it says this, that Jesus lives forever to make intercession for you. Jesus is praying for you. Some of you, the times in your life, you felt like no one was praying for you. you feel, some of you have things in your life, you feel like no one knows what you're going through. No one understands the situation you're in. You can't tell people because of this, that, or the other. But Jesus knows, and Jesus, the very Son of God, turns just to his Father and says, do you see? Have you noticed? And he's praying for you. And he's praying for you not on the basis of your performance, but he's praying for you on the basis of his performance. He's saying, what I did speaks for my son, speaks for my daughter. As you all know, we've walked through a difficult couple of months, and in the midst of loss and grief, and of course, we're praying continually now for the Anderson family, but in the midst of this season, what I've learned and what I pray that the Anderson family will experience is that you get glimpses of God's goodness in very unexpected ways. One of the most, um, one of the greatest lessons I've learned in this time of grief that I never knew before is that the human heart can be simultaneously filled with great sadness and great gratitude at the exact same time. Deep, deep sadness like I've never experienced in my life, but so grateful for so many things. When you walk through this, you realize, I have more than I thought I had. I have more in my friends. I have more in my family. We have more in this church than we knew that we had. We do. And we're learning this. We're learning this together. Deep sadness, great moments of gratitude and joy One of those moments happened for us recently when little Caroline, who's our six-year-old kindergartner, we didn't know this. She goes to a little Christian school, but they keep a prayer journal. They keep a prayer journal in their classroom, and they write out their prayers, and they just different things that are on their hearts. And of course, we've been praying so much for each other and praying for my mom, especially during this difficult season. And and one day, her, her kindergarten teacher sent us this picture. And she sent it to me and Aaron. She said, I think you would like to see a picture of Caroline's prayer journal. And this is Caroline's prayer journal up on the screen. And, and, and Caroline and Lilia and all the grandkids call my mom Grandmama. And it's just her writing her name out. And it's such a powerful, I think it's such a powerful form of prayer. You know, I mean, she's six. She doesn't know how to say the right things. She doesn't, you know, I'm trying to teach her how to pray. Well, you know, you actually pray to God. You don't pray to Jesus. You pray in his, you know, I'm trying to teach her because I'm a teacher, but this is a more powerful prayer than I may have ever prayed in my life. And the spirit hears and receives this sort of prayer. But as I was looking at this and moved by this and considering, you know, and this encouraged my mom's heart so much to realize that God's spirit is putting uh, people's, names on, and, and lives on the hearts of your children, and they can pray, and they don't have to sound like you, and they don't have to pray like you, and they don't have to pray as long as you, and please, they don't have to pray as loud as you, but, but they can pray by just writing out someone's name over and over and over, and so I believe it's a powerful form of prayer, but you know, when we, when we consider that Jesus now, because he entered into the place of honor, and he's seated at the right-hand side of the Father, and he's praying for you, I had this thought as I looked at this picture, I thought to myself, If Jesus has a prayer journal, what's it look like? And can you picture, it's it's your name. It's your name written over and over and over and over. And you know what he's praying for you even this morning? Three things, I believe. 
He's praying that you would endure. He's praying that you would emerge. Emerge from the things that are holding you back, the sin that so easily entangles us. Emerge from hiding. Emerge from not using your gifts. Emerge from not serving. Emerge from not reaching people. Emerge out of those things. And he's also praying that you would enter in to the place of honor, both by placing your faith and trust in him here and now, but someday, face to face, we will see him no longer through a glass dimly, but we will see our Savior like my dad, like Kit Anderson, like others see him this morning face to face. And if we get there, it's not going to be in our strength. It's going to be because we have one who went before us. And even this morning, is praying for you. He, he endured, he emerged, and he entered. Let's pray together this morning.